Well, I want to continue in a series that I began a couple of weeks ago, a series that I'm calling The Issues of Life. Valerie and I have some dear friends, a husband and a wife, and we were with them recently. And as we were enjoying a meal and conversation, in the course of that conversation, she told us that she has never once in her life eaten a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And my brain went, what? <laughs> what? I found that to be so unusual because, I mean, from a child, we've had peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I mean, they're quick to make, they're inexpensive, and kids love them, to be honest with you. I've never met another person that has not eaten one. I said to her, you mean curiosity alone didn't get to you or you'd have to have one? She said, no. And if she hasn't had one by now, believe me, she will live out her days probably not eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. A synonym for sandwich is pressure. And sometimes we feel like we're sandwiched in. We feel like we're pressured in on from all directions. And I've come to know in this life that we walk in that it's impossible to walk through life and not get sandwiched in somewhere along the line, not to experience pressures of some sort. Like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, at times we get smeared and sometimes we get bitten. Life comes with issues and issues come with life. I don't think anybody would argue with that. But when issues knock on our door, which they invariably do, we must be mindful that our Father is for us. He is for us all the time. He is never against us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? He is there to put his wings over us, to defend us. We must never let go of that truth. So today I'm going to be ministering for a little while through a message I'm calling Under the Shadow of the Almighty. The Hebrew word behind our English word shadow is a word called sail. It's spelled T-S-E-L, but it's pronounced sail in the Hebrew, which translates as shade or defense. So to say that we are under the shadow of the Almighty, we are essentially saying we are under the defense of the Almighty. God is our defender that's where we learn the importance ourselves of defending. We have this innate desire. We have this innate equipping to defend that which is important to us, our children, our family, our homes, our spouses, this gospel, if you will. And through the message today, I want us to see the significance of defending our borders. When you stare at this word border, a word begins to emerge from it. Can you see it? Watch for it. It is the word order. The easiest way to remember the importance of a border is to remember it this way. Be order. Order is the opposite of chaos. And in the absence of borders, and the enforcement of our borders, there is only complete and utter chaos. If you don't believe me, let me tell you something. Your bank account has borders on it. If you write checks that exceed the amount that you have in the bank, 
I'm telling you in advance, you will create complete and utter chaos in that account and in your life because you have breached that border. A vast portion of the body of Christ doesn't know how to respond to the chaos we are witnessing. The church thinks that her sole responsibility is to just pray. This is good, but it's not our sole responsibility. You just don't pray for a job without sending out resumes and without going to interviews. You don't just pray for a spouse and then wait for some sort of mail order bride. You don't just pray for better health and then just disregard the way you eat and the way you consume things. You just don't pray for better hygiene and then refuse to bathe and brush your teeth. Friends, the church has a voice. The church has a constitutional right. The church has hands. And with a marker, she can change the course of our nation. Yet like a knickknack, a big portion of the church sits idle and motionless on a shelf. The church has been taught for so long that it's not spiritual for her to be involved in the political arena, including voting. Now, I know this to be true because I listen to conversations. I look at statistics once in a while. I know what I grew up in. And it just wasn't spiritual when we were growing up to be involved in any kind of political realm. It just wasn't even spiritual for many people to even vote. I totally disagree with that logic. It couldn't be further from the truth. We need to be involved in our world. In Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 2, we find these words. Look at what it says. It says, when the righteous are in authority, what happens? The people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Is that simple or not? Friends, we throw parties when the righteous are in authority because out of their positions, They do things to bless the nation. Why? Because they are thinking about the people. They're not just thinking about themselves. Friends, let me ask you a question. Who are the ones that are going to put the righteous in positions of authority? I'll tell you. It's the righteous who vote for the righteous. Did you know that Out of the 90 million evangelical Christians in the United States, that about 40 million of them do not vote. Almost half. In fact, 15 million are not even registered voters. The other 25 million are registered, but they just simply stay home. The scriptures plainly tell us that God is the God of order. He has numbered our days and he has numbered the hairs on our heads. The God of order thought it essential to put borders in place. We see that truth in the Genesis creation narrative. God, who is Elohim, spoke light into void. He spoke light into emptiness. He spoke light into darkness. In other words, Elohim spoke into chaos and darkness, and he brought forth 
order. Friends, let me remind you about something that we are created in his likeness and his image. Therefore, we have been given the God-given power and privilege and ability and authority to do as Jesus did. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we find these words. It says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form. That literally means the earth was worthless. You say, wait a minute now, God created the earth, and you're going to say it's worthless. I'm just telling you what the word means. Why? Because it is not serving the purpose yet for what God intended. So at this point, it is worthless. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, I love this, let there be light, and there was light. I want you to look at those first four words of the entire Bible. It says, in the beginning, God, in the Hebrew, barashi bara Elohim, beginning, created God. In the beginning, God. The reason we have chaos in our streets is because in the beginning, God was not the centerpiece of many homes. The reason we have chaos in our schools and our college is for the same reason. In the beginning, God was not the foundation of the home. The reason that we have chaos in our governmental institutions and our workplaces is because in the beginning, God was not the sole fabric of everything they breathe for. The reason we have chaos in our neighborhoods and at our borders and in our country and in our world is for the same reason, and that is because in the beginning, God was not a part of every decision you made. Friends, most of us probably grew up in a home, a spiritual home where God was a centerpiece of the home. He was talked about all the time. He's where we got our value from. He's where our foundation came from. But many homes are not like that today. I'm talking about little children that were never taught how to deal, how to honestly deal with the issues of life. Remember, you're going to get them. Oh, they may have learned how to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but they were never showed the way out of darkness. They were never taught that Jesus Christ is the way out of this darkness. He's the way out of void. He's the way out of emptiness. They were never taught that they can abide under the shadow of the Almighty, that they can abide under the defense of the Almighty. So what do they do? They want to always defend themselves. And I have learned, my friends, over the years, I don't always have to defend myself because God will defend me. There are times when I insist on defending myself. I want to defend myself. And I hear the Holy Spirit say, no, let me take care of this. Let me take care of this so that you realize, number one, when it's said and done, I was the one behind all this. Number two, the person who had the issue will realize it too. Friends, if any one of the rioters were suddenly transplanted into a world without form and void and darkness, they'd welcome the hand of a police officer to jerk them out 
from such despair? If the ones who impeached our sitting president were hurled into a world without form and void and darkness, they would welcome, friends, the pardoning signature of President Donald J. Trump. Friends, let me tell you something. A drowning man does not care if the lifeguard is Democratic or Republican. He doesn't care if they're male or female. He doesn't care if they're Presbyterian or Pentecostal. He doesn't care if they're Asian or Caucasian. All he cares about is that somebody's there. Let me ask you a question. If you were drowning in the middle of a torrential river, can you see yourself out there? But there's a lifeguard on the shore. Would you care at that moment what his credit score was? Not at all, because you have one need at that moment. It's the need to be saved. That's all you care about. Isn't that what God did for us through Jesus Christ? On the cross, Jesus hung. And the scriptures declare that he had no form or comeliness that we should desire him. His life canceled, made void by rioters and protesters from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. Jesus hung on the cross. For six hours, the precious Lamb of God suffered on the cross. Six is the number for man. He did this for man. He didn't do this for himself. He did this for man. Oh, that every leader of our country would have the same heart, that they would step into office and they would say, I'm doing this for man. I'm doing this for every American. I'm not just doing this for myself. During the crucifixion, darkness came upon the land. Does any of this sound familiar? Without form, marred, beaten beyond recognition, the Bible says. Void, his life canceled. And darkness from noon till three. And Jesus would eventually exhale his final breath. But before he would do that, he would utter the words from the cross. It is finished. I've come to love those words. Takes a big monkey off my back. But in three days, he would rise again. Jesus would rise again. You can't keep him in the grave. In his resurrection, he would replace without form and void and darkness with life and love and light. This is the essence of Jesus Christ. The next scriptures. Now God has created the heaven and the earth. And he's already said, let there be light. And God saw the light, that it was good. God divided the light from the darkness. Dividing speaks of both border and order. You see, friends, it's light out right here right now, but it's dark on the other side of the globe. And there's this thin line that goes around the earth where you have dark on one side and light on the other, friends. He's the God of order. He's the God of borders. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night and the evening and the morning were the first day. 
The Father has set borders as to how long it can be day and how long it can be night. He has also set borders for the seasons. We call them winter, spring, summer, and fall. And friends, he has set a border in place for how long he will tarry. And then that day will eventually come and then Jesus will come again. There has been a border that has been set. No man knows the day. No man knows the hour. But that time will come and Jesus will come again too. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, we find these words. For God is not a God of disorder. Do you see that? But of peace as he is in all the churches of his people. The anarchy we are witnessing in our streets and across the land, first of all, is not from God. God is not trying to teach us any lessons, friends. Borders have been breached and they have ushered in disorder and chaos. The liberal hearts of many are demanding, you know what they're doing? They're demanding a world without form and void and darkness. They call it cancel culture. They're demanding a country without police, without government, without capitalism, without Christianity, without military, and without borders. Friends, God is the God of order, and God is the God of peace. You cannot have order without border. In October of 2018, a young lady sat in this church. It was in our other building. It would be the first time that I would meet her. Little did I know the next time I would see her is when I would be called by her fiance to come and comfort him as I watched them carry her lifeless body away. She had died of a drug overdose. Drugs that came across a border. 90% of all illegal drugs come across the border. I want you to remember these things on Tuesday, November 3rd, as you cast your vote for men and women that will uphold the will of most of the American people that we would build an infrastructure that protects our border along our southern states. I want you to remember that truth. You see, this may not be a popular message, but it's a truthful message, friends, and we need to hear these kind of things. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, we find these truths. It says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves, not by God, but by man. The authority, they'll bring judgment on themselves. It says, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. And then it asks the question, do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. Let me tell you something. I have zero fear of a police officer. I have no fear. And if I get pulled over on the way home for some sort of infraction, I don't have any fear. Why? Because I know he's sent there for my good. That's what the scripture says. It says right there. But if you do wrong, be afraid. I'm not going to do wrong. He says, be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword in vain or they do not bear the sword for no reason. But he said, they're also there for our good when we do right. And so I have no fear if he says license, registration, insurance. Yes, officer. Yes, sir. I don't plan on fighting with him. I don't plan on pulling a knife on him. I don't want to pull a gun on him. I don't want to get smart with him. I want to respect him. I want to honor him. It's been a lot of years since I've been pulled over, friends. A long time, back in the 1980s. 
but I would still respond with, yes, sir, no, sir, and then just be on my way. And if he said, Mark, I got to put the handcuffs on you and take you to jail, well, then I would say, why? If he, even if it didn't make sense, I would go with him. It continues, it says, therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. You don't like that word, do you? <laughs> For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, pay revenue. And then it says this, if respect, then respect. If honor, then honors. Friends, we have lost our respect and our honor for so many people, especially God's servants. How? It's back to what I said a minute ago. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God was missing from the family fabric, so you didn't learn respect. You didn't learn honor. And so we have a nation out there, yes, that we are praying for and that we speak life into and we speak God's word into when we have opportunity. And then it says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. God has put governing authorities in place. Yes, according to those scriptures, that's exactly right. But we, the citizens, put the people in those positions of authority. I don't want you to forget that. And I think that's why the church has gotten docile over the years, is because they figure that whoever gets in there, that was God's will to get in there. That's simply not true. In other words, God is not controlling the voter. He's not harvesting ballots and he's not manipulating our vote. He has given us all authority. Our joy is to hear his heart and to respond in direct proportion to what his heart is saying. That's our joy. It's just to listen to Papa's heart. Daddy, what do you say? And then respond in direct proportion. Don't go by feelings. Don't go by what you see. Listen for Papa's heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 17, we find this incredible truth. Samuel is sent by God. He is a great prophet to anoint a king. And so he goes, I don't think he knows in advance who he's going to anoint because he relies on every step of his journey for the father to speak to him. That's the way we should go through life. Don't plan so far ahead, friends. Steps of the righteous are ordered by the Lord. So just listen for Papa on your journey. Sometimes I've been on journeys and I thought were from the Lord and they were no doubt, but in the midst of that journey, he had me go a little bit different way than what I was expecting I would go. Why? Because I had been in the pattern maybe of doing that before, but he said, no, we're gonna do something a little bit different this time. We find these words in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses four through 17. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They know he's going to anoint a king. 
They said to him, you are old. That's a great way to greet Samuel, isn't it? You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. In other words, we find plenty of fault with you and we find fault with your sons. Does this sound a little familiar, friends? It does to me. Since when do we have an age limit? on being a king? Since when do we have an age limit on being a pastor? Since when do we have an age limit on being a missionary? You are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Now here's what they said. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he did what we all ought to do. He prayed to the Lord. He didn't fire back at them. He didn't fly off the handle. He prayed to the Lord. And here's what happened. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. And here's what he says. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Friends, don't take it personal when you feel rejected. He says right there, they have not rejected you. It's not you, it's the light in you that they're rejected. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me as their king. And he said, they've done this from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but he says, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Are you ready for this? Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. Look at those three words. He will take. He will take your sons and make them serve with the chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow ground, plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. Look at those next three words. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. Now, I don't know if you fully understand the effects of socialism and illegal immigration through open borders, but you can sum it up in three words, friends. He will take. Friends, the people got their king. It was King Saul. Had they waited upon the Lord and had they searched for the Lord's heart, they would have gotten a different king. They would have gotten King David, a man after the heart of God. This was God's original intention, but they insisted, give us this man, give us Saul. He's tall, dark, and handsome. David is redheaded and short, and David is just a 17-year-old boy, a snot-nosed kid. No, this man, you know what? Because they were so in tune to looking at the outward appearance of man instead of looking upon the heart. I'm passionate about this, friends. 
I think we spend way too much time judging things by looking at outward appearances. This past week, a friend of mine asked me a question. He said, can you explain to me what in the world is going on in this world? And the first thing I told him, I said, friend, you cannot eat a hamburger and vomit fries. What goes in a man is what comes out of a man. Does this make sense now? When Jesus said a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit and a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit, you get what you put in. I went on to tell him that the chaos that we are dealing with have their roots in hearts that have never heard the message in the beginning, God. You see, friends, our chaos stems from people that don't understand borders. They don't understand restrictions. They don't understand, be quick to listen and slow to speak. And they have never known the love of Christ. In the midst of their disorder, they're writing checks that they can't pay for. They're writing checks that someone else will have to cover. Did you notice how quickly the chaos in Kenosha settled down? Did you notice how quickly it ceased? Did you know what we did? We brought in the National Guard. You know what they did? They came to restore order. I don't have a problem with the National Guard. Yes, I would rather see a minister come in here and I'd rather see the rioters fall on their knees and worship Christ. Of course, I would rather see that. But at the same time, I want my neighborhood safe. I want my church safe. I want our people safe. I want our families safe. I don't have a problem with that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, we find these words. It says, let all things be done decently and in order. Have you heard that scripture before? This is from the Apostle Paul. He heard it from Christ. He said, let all things be done decently and in order. Borders are political, economic, and protective boundaries. They are essential to the health of a nation. We enforce our borders through laws and physical barriers and through checkpoints. And like them or not, they are in place for our well-being and protection. Everybody, I don't understand this, everybody ought to desire secure borders. Friends, I'm telling you, life would be unbearable without borders. And as long as a man's heart is bent toward evil, borders will be necessary. You say, Pastor Mark, come on, come on. What's the big deal? Do we really need border walls? Let me ask you some questions. Think about that thought. I had a guy ask me that a year or two ago. He said, we don't need borders. I said, friend, do you have locks on your doors at home? He said, well, yes. I said, do you use them? He said, well, of course I do. I said, those are borders. Let me ask you, have you created passwords for your email account? Have you created passwords for your bank accounts? Of course you have. You know what those are? Those are borders. Do you protect your credit card numbers? Do you protect your social security number? Yes, of course you do. Why? Because it's valuable and you set borders in place to do that. Are your medical records protected at the hospital? I would like to think so. Why? Because they have set very stringent borders on who can see them and how they can be transferred. When borders are breached, chaos ensues. You know, the curb on the side of the road, the side of the street is a border. The guardrail on the side of the highway is a border. The line down the center and the lines on the side of the road, those are borders. And when we cross those borders, chaos ensues. Do you see that wedding ring right there? 
and that wedding ring around my finger is a border. And if I allow that border to be breached outside of the sanctity of marriage to Valerie, then complete and utter chaos will ensue. I will have written a check my life cannot cash. I have no desire to do that, but that is a border. That is something that tells me I'm one with this beautiful woman right here. And if the world could learn that, if they could just hear that, that borders are in place for our protection. They're not just to take away our fun. They're not just to take away our rights. They're not just there to take away every little thing that we wake up and think we ought to do. They are there for our safety. They are there for our protection and the protection of others. And God is for them. When Adam and Eve sinned, God placed a border around the Garden of Eden, a border in the form of cherubim with a flaming sword. We see this truth in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from where he had been taken. Now, friends, did God do that because he's mad at Adam? Of course not. God has put a border in place now for Adam's safety, for Adam's protection. And then it says, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim with a flaming sword. Friends, that is just like us building a fence along the southern border. That's what it's there for, cherubim with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to eternal life. There are millions of Americans that have been brainwashed by our politicians and media to desire and demand open borders, even in light of the fact that 90% of all legal drugs are smuggled across the border. Drugs that killed that young lady that visited our church. Drugs that are killing our family and friends. Drugs that bring death and destruction, disorder and dysfunction to our family. Many of our politicians are for open borders and they extend invitations for the entire world to come to America without restriction, without vetting. I find that ironic because they live in gated communities. They are not only gated, but they're guarded and they're garnished with the finest of homes and the finest of landscape. They don't understand sometimes the world that we live in. Politicians and lawmakers that are disconnected from your reality and my reality, politicians and lawmakers that say, hey, wait a minute, you don't need to be under the shadow of the Almighty. You need to be under the thumb of government. Friends, don't get me wrong here. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm adamant. I'm adamant because the church has been sleeping on this one so long. Short-sighted as to the destruction that will overtake our nation, such as travail that overtakes a woman in labor pains. This is our reality in the absence of protective borders. Without borders, we will eventually end up with a House of Representatives and a Senate and a noble office full of guys like Saul, people that don't have the heart of God. Men and women without godly character and people that do not rule with daddy's heart. So let's ask the question again, is God for borders? Well, of course he is. In John chapter 10, verses 1 through 9, we find these words. Jesus is talking. 
He says, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs up in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and out and find pastures. Friends, Jesus has clearly drawn a borderline. He is telling us that there are people that are on each side of the gate. God knows I wish they were all on the same side that Jesus is on, but that's not a reality at this point. There's people on each side of the gate. There's people on each side of our borders. And if these people will listen to his voice and they will enter by justified means, then they will find rest in pastures. He contrasts, I love this, legal entry with unlawful entry. Unlawful entry is when a man scales the gate another way. Jesus said those words. The man is referred to as a thief and a robber. If you think for a moment that you can enter the gate by any other way than grace, you are mistaken, friends. Friends, I am for immigration, but there is a righteous way to become a citizen. Anything less creates chaos, which leads to destruction and utter ruin. In the book of Job, we discover God having a dialogue with Job. Job's trying to figure out who made everything. Where was he at when things were made? And God says these things in Job chapter 38, verses 8 through 11. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb. When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. Look what he says. When I fixed limits. When I fixed borders, in other words, he's saying for it and set its doors and bars in place when I said, this is as far as you may come, no farther. Aren't you glad he said that to the ocean? Aren't you glad he said that to Lake Michigan? This is as far as you can come, no further. He set a border, friends. And I'm thankful that God is such a God of orchestration. He's such a God of order, or we would have complete and utter chaos. We wouldn't know where we could build a home. Our Father has set borders in our skies and He's set borders in our seas. He has placed limits for each. Friends, even though COVID and chaos have penetrated every border, I rise up and I declare, be order. And I speak to that right now. Be order. Hear the word of the Lord. Order in Jesus' name. If you say that you're for open borders, then you're not being honest with yourself. 
You see, at one time, migrants would come to America for two reasons. One is because they were in search of better opportunities and they perceived the country that they were fleeing to also was safer than the country that they were living in. They had less danger here in America, so why not come to America? Better opportunities. Today, many people come across our border so that they can profit from America's addiction to drugs. Many also come to our country to do acts of terrorism, harmful acts of terrorism. I have a message for you. Be order. Amen. <laughs> when I was 17 years old, I lived in Wisconsin Rapids. And we had a zoo in town. And I could sit and watch the monkeys for, I mean, for hours. There's just something about monkeys. They're, almost like, they're like humans, you know, almost. I could just sit there and watch the monkeys, you know. They just kind of chill out. They seem to know what rest is about more so than we do. They just lounge around, lay around, you know. And, they, and I love the fact that they groom one another. That's what we ought to do. They love one another, you know. They groom each other. They're picking little bugs and dander off each other and getting rid of it. And one is just kind of pulling back the hair, the fur, whatever you want to call it, and finding all these things. And I would just sit there and watch them for hours. And it got late in the day one day, and I thought, man, something came over me, man. I had a mischievous mindset to me. And I was with, my, I think, my brother and a friend, and there was nobody around. And see, there was this big cage, right, that the monkeys were in. And there were 10 or 15 monkeys in there. On the outside of that cage, oh, about five feet back, was this fence. It went up, and then it came back this way. So it kept you from being able to stick your hand in the monkey cage, right? And I got this bright idea that I'd get up on top of this fence, and I would jump from <laughs> one big jump right onto the monkey cage, and so when I got on top of that fence, those monkeys were kind of just still picking bugs, watching me. And when I got on top of that fence, one big jump, and I was on top of that cage. And I'm telling you, friends, you ever wish you wouldn't have done something? That was it right there. All 10, 15 of those monkeys were immediately at the top of that cage, and they were just angry monkeys, man. The ones that were just laying there, doing nothing, just sunning themselves, suddenly they were angry, and they were reaching through the bars, and they were reaching through the cage, and they were grabbing my legs, and I was doing something that looked like the Irish jig on top of that monkey cage. I was afraid for my life. I thought they were going to pull me through the cage, and monkeys are strong. They're so strong. When they grab a hold of you, man, it's amazing how strong they are. I was so afraid, and I was dancing like crazy, and I come flying off of that cage, not even thinking that I had about, oh, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 feet down. Didn't feel a thing. You say, what happened, Mark? I'll tell you what happened. I breached their border. It's called personal space. And I created complete and utter chaos. Who did that? I did that. I went someplace I shouldn't have been going. I did something I shouldn't have done. And those monkeys were right there to tell me they don't like that. <laughs> the stuff you do when you're a teenager. In Psalm 91, it contains the words that showcase the message title today. When we think about the Psalms, I mean, the first person that comes to my mind is David. But David didn't write all the Psalms. There's 150 of them, and David only wrote 75 of them. He is not the author of Psalm 91. The evidence points, are you ready for this? To Moses as the writer of Psalm 91. 
In fact, we know for certain that he wrote Psalm 90 because it begins with the words, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Psalm 91, the author remains unnamed, but we know based on the language that is used in there that we can find it in some of Moses' other writings. In fact, we can find language that only Moses used in the uh, book of Deuteronomy. In Psalm 91, verses 1 through 16, we find these words. Look at this. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress. The word fortress literally means he's my defender. Remember what shadow means? He's my defense. Refuge and fortress, my defender, my God in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee. That word deliver means he shall defend you. We see this throughout the scripture. God is our defender. He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers. That word cover means he shall defend thee. He shall be your defense. And how is he going to do that? He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and thy buckler. The Hebrew word behind our English word Shadow, again, is the word sail. Sail is formed with two Hebrew letters. Do you see them, those Hebrew letters? Reading from right to left like Hebrew reads, they are the letters Sade and the letter Lamed. That's how you get sail. Sade Lamed, sail. Every Hebrew word has a word picture. It has an association. It has a number, a numerical value to it. And I love that about the Hebrew. The Hebrew picture for Sade, that would be the letter on your right. The Hebrew word picture for that is man on his side. Do you see it looks kind of like a man on his side? The Hebrew picture for Lamed is shepherd's staff. They associate that with shepherd's staff. This letter is the 12th letter of the alphabet, and it is referred to as the Malek, Hamalakim, which literally means the king of kings. They call this letter the king of kings. I want to draw your attention to the one that defended us when we were knocked down. The one who left the 99 when we were downcast. He is none other than Jesus Christ. He defends us because we dwell. And that word dwell means we permanently abide, not temporarily. Even Moses, under an old covenant, wrote a word that meant we permanently abide under the shadow of the Almighty, under the defense of the Almighty in the secret place of the Most High. Again, the Hebrew word sail is the word behind our English word shadow, and it's made from those two Hebrew letters, Sade and Lamed. The numerical value for Sade is 90. The numerical value for Lamed is 30. Now let's put 90 and 30 together for a moment. What do you get? You have 120. 
The author of, we believe, of this psalm, and the historians will say the same thing, is Moses. And I want to draw your attention to how long Moses lived. I think they hid things even in the word, because the key word for this psalm is that shadow. He that dwelleth in the secret place shall abide under the shadow, under the defense of the Most High, of the Almighty. I find it almost forensic, buddy, that Psalm 91 was written by Moses, the man who lived to be 120 years old. So would this psalm actually prophesy Moses' long life? Will it go on to talk about his long life? It does. It does. But moreover, Moses is writing, he wants us to get the point about our eternal defender, the one that we call Malek, Hamalakim, the king of kings the one that has hemmed us in with the border of eternal love. He has hemmed us in with the border of eternal salvation, eternal mercy, eternal forgiveness. Everything about Christ is eternal. Isn't that beautiful? We don't have to worry about him changing from one day to the next based on our actions. When we have off moments, when we jump on top of monkey cages, no, we don't have to, you know, we do other things, but we don't have to worry about him no longer being eternal with his love and his salvation and his forgiveness. He goes on to say these words, thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. What is he talking about? He's talking, you don't have to be afraid. I put borders in place. I'm for you. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy way. He said, a thousand shall fall at thy side and 10,000 at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee borders. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands. Friends, do you see this? God is our defender. That doesn't mean we don't defend. We are made in his likeness. We are made in his image. So we do what he does. We defend the orphan. We defend the downcast. We defend the homeless. We are defenders as well. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. And then he finally says these words. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Look at these words. Because he hath set his love upon me. There's only one other place. Those words are found in the Bible, set his love upon me. That is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. That's how they said, we know this verbiage came from Moses. He's the only one in the Bible that has repeated that. Because he hath set his love upon me, therefore, look at those words, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. 
He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. And then he ends that psalm. He says, with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. I believe Moses was looking back going, Father, I've had a good long life. I'm 120 years old. Except my strength is still there and my, I can see perfectly. I've had a good long life. You have showed me your salvation. You showed it to me at the Red Sea. You showed it to me with manna and quail from heaven. You showed it to me when I cut a branch and threw it in the water and made it sweet water. I've seen your salvation over and over. And now, as much as I would love to go into the promised land, I can tell you whether I get there or I don't, I am completely satisfied. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. God is the God of order. He has put borders in place for our well-being and our protection. As I step into the voting booth in November, I will be reminded of the secret place. In that booth, I will be aware that I'm under the shadow of the Almighty. I'll be aware that I'm under the defense of the Almighty. And before I lay my first drop of ink on my ballot, I will hold it to the Lord and pray, giving thanks that he has set his love upon this nation. I will also be mindful that God without man is still God, but man without God is nothing. Tuesday, November 3rd, will mark one of the most important days in world history. Let me ask you a question. Will you value vote? Will you consider the importance of our borders? Will you cast your vote for righteousness? Friends, I want to remind you about something that all 435 House of Representatives seats will be contested on that day. 35 out of the 100 Senate seats will be challenged that day. And the greatest and the highest office in the land, the office of President of the United States, will be jousted for on that day. This is one of the most critical elections and one of the most important votes in world history. If the righteous do not come to the polling booths, the nation will mourn. If the righteous do come to the polling booths, the nation will rejoice. My plea to the righteous is, do not remain silent. Do not sit at home like knickknacks on a shelf. Do not ignore the issues of life that we are facing. Do not forget what our country would look like without police officers, without righteous kings, without capitalism, without Christianity, without military, and without our borders. To overlook these freedoms and protections would be synonymous with saying, give us a Saul. Friends, we were created in the likeness and the image of God. 
He has given us the privilege. He's given us the power. He's given us the ability. He's given us the honor to speak life and love and light into void and emptiness and darkness. You see, the man that was laying on his side, Sadi, that was me. That was you. That was us. And then, Malek, Hamalakim, the king of kings, Lamed, came along and he dealt with our issues of life, the issue known as sin. He picked us up and he saved us completely. And then he sealed us with the impenetrable border of the precious Holy Spirit. And then he whispered these words into our hearts. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Daddy, I want to thank you. I want to thank you, Father. Sometimes we need a teaching like this. This teaching goes way beyond the few that are seated in this church today and reaches out to the world, across the United States and across the world to help us understand how spiritual it really is to cast our vote for righteousness. That's what grace looks like, Father. Grace doesn't just take everything on the chin. Grace has a backbone. Grace stands and knows who they are, that they're made in the likeness and image of the Father. And for so long, Daddy, we have sat like knickknacks on a shelf, silent. But I believe in this day, in this hour, that the church is rising up, Daddy. That 40 million evangelical Christians will not sit home this election, but they'll go out and they'll cast their vote for the things that matter to our people. And Father, I thank you. I thank you, Father, that you are reaching out to the people that are so living in darkness. They have so much void in their life. They have so much disorder in their lives, Daddy. And your heart, Daddy, is to find them laying on their side like Sadi. And for Malek Hamalakim to come along and reach down and not just give a hand out, but give a hand up. Father, thank you. Thank you for the precious Holy Spirit. You've put a border around us. You have sealed us, the word says, until the day of redemption. And with that, Daddy, we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.